Good morning. This is James Stevenson in the NBC newsroom in New York, bringing you the news from around the world and calling in NBC observers overseas. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill has opened a three-day debate in the House of Commons on the big three agreements made at the Yalta Conference. On the Western Front, Allied armies are continuing their progress to the Rhine River with good results reported from all sectors. The main German resistance is being thrown against American 1st and 9th Army units west of Cologne. On the Eastern Front, according to the German radio, Red Army forces have exploded the nisa oder River sector in what is described as the jump-off in the final drive for Berlin. The Germans also say that the Russian flanking spearheads in the north have pushed to within 23 miles of Stettin, Berlin's Baltic port and capital of Pomerania. In the Pacific, American Marines are moving steadily north on Iwo Jima. United States land planes are now using the main airfield in support of ground troops. And Lieutenant General Smith, Marine commander, predicts capture of Iwo within a few more days. At Manila, General MacArthur has proclaimed the city the capital of restored civil government in the Philippines and turned governmental affairs over to President Sergio Osmena. And now a few words from your announcer. You read about the Nazi saboteurs who were captured not so long ago. Now hear about another Axis saboteur at work right in your community. A saboteur who hasn't been captured. This saboteur's name is carelessness. The carelessness that causes costly wartime accidents. Listen to this casualty list. 97,900 dead, 10 million injured, the loss in dollars, 5 billion. The time lost through these accidents was equivalent to a complete shutdown for an entire year of war plants employing a million workers. We can't afford these accidents in 1945, the most critical year of the war. Do your part to prevent them. Be careful always, on and off the job. Now here's James Stevenson and your World News Roundup. Prime Minister Winston Churchill appeared before the British House of Commons this morning to make the first public pronouncement as one of the big three of the agreements reached at the Yalta Conference. NBC's Ed Hawker will report from London in a few minutes, giving us a first-hand account of Mr. Churchill's remarks and their reception by the British Parliament. Therefore, in lieu of a shortwave broadcast from the Western Front this morning, we are allotting that time to Mr. Hawker. And here are the latest reports of Allied offensive operations in Europe as received up to the minute in the NBC newsroom here in New York. A bulletin from Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force in Paris announces that heavy artillery of the American First Army has begun to pour its first shells into the great Rhine city of Cologne. Advanced units of the first are now only eight miles from that city. Good progress is reported by both the first and ninth in their drive toward the Rhine. North of the Cologne Plain, ninth army troops have driven to within six miles of Mönchengladbach, the key road and communication center in the vital Ruhr Basin. A staff officer of the 9th Army told war correspondents that there seems to be no organized German line left in front of the American forces in that sector, and it appears that the 9th has effected a breakthrough. Meanwhile, at the northern end of the Western Front, Canadian infantry paced by armored columns has ripped into the German defenses for gains of four and a half miles in the past 24 hours. Udem, a strategic road center five miles southwest of Kalkar, has been captured and over 2,000 prisoners taken. In the Saar region, south of Cologne, the American Third Army has reached a point two miles northeast of Saarburg and is about to outflank the Nazi fortress city of Trier. Several German counterattacks have been thrown back. And the methodical air destruction of Berlin continued last night with RAF mosquitoes bombing the German capital by light of great fires which were started yesterday by a record force of 1,200 American planes. 
The German radio said today that hundreds of United States bombers had returned to the attack this morning. Moscow is silent today regarding German radio announcements of the Russian jump-off in the Nisa oder River sector. The German broadcaster said that the entire front due east of Berlin had erupted, with the 1st White Russian Army and 1st Ukraine Army opening their long-awaited all-out drive to the capital. Moscow's silence may, re may be regarded as confirmation of this operation. The Russian government generally is silent regarding new military actions. However, Marshal Stalin gave a tip-off on the impending drive a few days ago when he said the zero hour had arrived. According to the Nazi reports today, the opposing forces along the Nisa Oder front are locked in what the Germans described as a merry-go-round of death. Now for our first overseas report. We go by shortwave to NBC in the Pacific. Scott Flaherty speaking from the war-torn city of Manila. A general shed tears this morning. A president sounded the determined keynote of recovery for a war-ravaged nation. And a very charming and attractive lady became part of the highly emotional climax of the historic ceremony. At 11 o'clock this morning, in the Malacanian Palace, General Douglas MacArthur solemnly declared the restoration of the Philippines' Commonwealth government in a simple ceremony that was couched with drama and overflowing with emotion. There were tears in General MacArthur's eyes as he gave way to President Sergio Arsmania. The general retired behind the drape. Soon, his emotions were calm again, and he reappeared in the background. As the applause sounded for Mr. Arsmania, General MacArthur once again restrained his emotions as a soldier and walked forward and embraced Mrs. Osmania, who had stood so proudly during the whole ceremony. The general extended a personal welcome and voiced his pleasure over her return with her family to Manila. This was such an emotional climax for the drama-packed ceremony that even most of the photographers joined the high-ranking military officers and Filipino dignitaries and became lost in their emotional reactions to the scene. Thus, within the sound of American guns still blasting away at pockets of Jap resistance, General MacArthur and President Osmania proclaimed to the world freedom from the bondage of the Japanese for the Philippine Islands and their people. General Carlos P. Romulo came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder, and said, I want to tell you, as an American, that once again, I am a man with a country. Later today, General Romulo, in a special radio address, concluded with this stirring statement. We are determined to carry the fight forward to the shores of the Japanese islands, to the heart of Tokyo itself. With this in view, the general continued, I know I echo the ardent desires of my people when I ask in their name for the privilege, nay, for the right of the Filipino soldiers to share in the invasion of Japan. Pat Flaherty speaking from Manila. I return you to NBC in New York. Bjorn Bjornsson of NBC is in London instead of Ed Hawker, as I reported earlier. Mr. Bjornsson is ready now to report on Prime Minister Churchill's speech in the House of Commons. We go by shortwave to NBC in London. This is Bjorn Bjornsson speaking from London. 
The world organization must not be based on a dictatorship of the great powers. This is the way Prime Minister Churchill characterized the international organization planned for the post-war world in the House of Commons debate, which opened less than an hour ago. Said Mr. Churchill, speaking of the great powers, it is their duty to serve the world and not to rule it. This, he said, he hoped had been accomplished through, through the voting procedure agreed on at the Yalta Conference. Mr. Churchill was submitting the following motion, that this House approve the declaration by the three great powers at the Crimea Conference, and in particular, he said, he would welcome an expression of the de determination to maintain unity of action, not only in achieving the final defeat of the common enemy, but thereafter, unity in peace as in war. As the Prime Minister began his message to the House, he was greeted by cheers. He emphasized the difficulties attendant upon arranging the conference. The fact that in spite of all the modern methods of communication, 14 months elapsed between Tehran and Yalta is a measure of those difficulties. It is well known that the British government greatly desired a triple meeting in the autumn, he continued. We rejoiced when at last Yalta was fixed. Describing the results of the meeting, the Prime Minister said, the recent conference of the three powers in the Crimea faced realities and difficulties in so exceptional a manner that the results constitute an act of state on which each party should formally express its opinion. Asking for an expression of confidence from the House, Mr. Churchill said, the government feel that they have the right to know where they stand with the House of Commons. A strong expression of support by the House will strengthen our position among our allies. The debate which opened this morning will continue until Thursday. It is believed here in London that there is little likelihood of a vote of any significance against the government should it be decided to divide the House on Thursday. No doubt some criticism will be expressed both by socialists and conservatives on certain aspects of the decisions relating to Poland. There is, however, no indication that the opinion has developed on either side of the House to such an extent as to bring about any sizable vote against the government. This is Bjorn Bjornsson in London, returning you to the NBC newsrooms in New York. Now we take you to NBC in Washington. This is Leif Eid in Washington. And this morning that man John L. Lewis is in again. Just as routine preliminary to the start of talking contract with the soft coal operators two days from now, Lewis has served what amounts to a 30-day strike notice, strictly within the Smith-Connolly anti-strike law, of course. Mine worker Lewis finds that a labor dispute exists within the meaning of the act, which he calls a grotesque labor statute. Anyway, this near-strike notice gives Lewis and his miners a jump on the soft coal operators, also on official Washington, which has been talking in whispers about what John L. might do when the contracts ran out. Nobody knows exactly what he'll ask for this time, but there's been some talk of a 25-cent-an-hour pay rise and other things. The last time you remember, he got his $2 a day pay boost in one way or another and twisted the little steel formula practically into shapeless junk. If coal supplies on hand is a bargaining point, then Lewis can start out strong in the contract talks. Secretary Ickes says that even with steady production, we'll be facing a 50 million ton deficit this year, that consumer stocks are dangerously low. Ickes says the mining force is down to a new low of 395,000 men now and it'll be 30,000 men smaller by the end of the year. And so, Ickes says, we cannot afford to have any general stoppage in coal mining, no matter how short. Otherwise, in Washington, General Half Arnold, the Air Force's chief, says in his annual report, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, and the possession of men and weapons capable of destroying an enemy promptly before he destroys us. 
OPA says those new tires for A-car drivers are still beyond the horizon. And at midnight last night, the country's nightclub owners said sad farewells to the greatest gold rush in the history of their business. There wasn't even the smallest bit of excitement. And about the only gag to come out is a new song, all about how the lights may go out at midnight, but love will go on forever. Ed in Washington, returning you now to New York. And this morning, we heard from NBC observers Pat Flaherty in Manila, John Johnson in London, and Leif Eid in Washington. Now here's your announcer, and then I'll be back with more news. March 15, 1945. That's a date for 50 million Americans. On or before March 15, 50 million Americans must file income tax returns. The job of filing this year will be considerably easier than last year. About 30 million taxpayers will be able to meet their filing responsibilities just by answering a few simple questions on their withholding receipt. About 10 million will use the short-form return, which is permitted for anyone whose income was less than $5,000. Another 10 million will use the long-form return, which is for those whose income was $5,000 or more. Find out now which return is for you. Fill it out and get it to your local collector of internal revenue as quickly as possible. Remember that if you had an income of $500 or more during 1944, you must file a return by withholding receipt, short-form or long-form return. Remember also that your taxes are going to help pay for the war. And again, here's James Stevenson in the NBC Newsroom. An Associated Press dispatch reports continued war, depro- uh, uh, continued war production in at least a dozen Chrysler Corporation plants appears in danger today, while strike leaders give further consideration to War Labor Board proposals for ending the work stoppage that in four days has brought idleness to more than 15,000 Chrysler workers in Detroit. The corporation's Dodge main plant, which manufactures parts for superfortresses, engines, tanks, rockets, and anti-aircraft cannon, is already closed. Nearly 2,000 employees at the Dodge truck plant were sent home yesterday, and company officials said further layoffs would follow unless an immediate settlement is reached. With a prospect that dependent final assembly plants in Chicago as well as Detroit might soon be affected, the executive board of Local 3 United Automobile Workers, CIO, has been called into session to discuss WLB and International Union back-to-work directives. And that's the morning's news from around the world. This is James Stevenson in the NBC Newsroom in New York saying goodbye, and I'll be seeing you tomorrow morning. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Mm-hmm.